Well, we're going to continue our message series called Get Up, where we're unpacking the impact of the resurrection into our daily lives. I want to talk to you today about your feelings, about your feelings. Now, as a dad, I already had a lot of feelings today. Uh, I saw my son and some of his closest friends standing up here on stage marking a transition. And all kinds of feelings kind of come up from the gut into your heart and then ultimately into your throat. And uh, you, you know what that's like. You know what it is like to be kind of washed over with feelings. Sometimes incredible joy. I had that when I held each of my children in my arms for the very first time. Right? Incredible joy. You, you're, you're like me. You probably have had incredible sadness, perhaps as you watch somebody you love go through something very, very difficult, and uh, you just feel that empathy and sadness for them. I've had incredible fear in my life where, you know, I was like literally afraid of something that was going to happen. Often that happens to me when I'm standing in line at an amusement park, and my kids are like, come on, Dad, this will be fun. And... Um, <laughs> So I've had all kinds of emotion. I've had all kinds of emotion. You've had all kinds of emotion. Emotions are a big part of our life. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but God is happy about that. God likes our emotions. But sometimes emotions can run away with us. Like we can get caught up in emotions and it's not healthy. And I want to talk to you today about being raised with Christ to deal with our emotions, to deal with how we feel. All right? We're going to talk about how to deal with how we feel. Because while emotions are a wonderful and good thing, They're not to be the thing that directs our life. Emotions are not to be the thing that guides us and directs us. God wants to guide us and direct us. And if we're not careful, our emotions will actually become like a God to us. They'll have incredible power in our life. And if we're not careful, they'll steer the ship of our life as opposed to having its appropriate place. We're going to talk about its appropriate place. We're going to talk about how to deal with your emotions, all right? So there in your message notes on the inside, you already looked at the front cover. Here's our guiding passage for today, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and Jesus here is talking. This is a passage we talk about a lot around here. He's talking to a group of of people who are listening to him, but one man in particular has said, what's the most important law? Like what's the, the biggest, most important thing we can know about the way God wants us to live? And so in answering that question, Jesus repeats a part of a very famous passage known to all Jewish people called the Shema. And that's found in Deuteronomy, and it begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and then you'll love the Lord your God. And here's where we pick up our passage, verse uh, number 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And in this one passage, we get kind of this multidimensional approach to how our affection, how our life is to be connected to God. You you, you see the words mind there, you see heart there, you see soul there, and you see strength there. So there's a multidimensional connection we're to have with God. And interestingly, in that it mentions our emotions or, or our heart, the seat of our emotions. When the Bible talks about our heart, it's often talking about the seat of our emotions, not the biological organ you have in your chest that's pumping blood, but that kind of metaphoric sense of where is the seat of your emotions. And in the Bible, that's in two places. Just thought you might find this interesting. In the Old Testament, even though in our Bibles it's translated heart, often when the Old Testament is talking about our heart and we read that word in English, what it really refers to is our bowels. And uh, it just doesn't sound as nice if I say to you, would you accept Jesus into your bowels? 
And so the translator said, we're not going to sell a lot of Bibles that way, and so we're going to change that to a much better term. But uh, they didn't say that literally. What what they said was is that, you know, we all can relate to the fact that sometimes even like our stomach, our physical body might even have emotional and physical reactions to what's going on around us. In the New Testament, by the time you get there, uh, the Greeks had been around and the Romans are working and there's a lot of literature now and they've changed a lot of that seed of emotion stuff to the heart. And so when Jesus mentions this, he's just saying, look, even with something that might seem as base and earthy as your emotions, even those can be turned towards God. And I just wanted to remind you that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, every aspect of our lives has the possibility of being changed. This is really good news. This is really good news for those of us who know what it is to be caught up in emotion, especially if you've been caught up in emotions that are holding you back. Emotions of fear and dread and concern. If those kinds of things are holding you back, you need to know, I have to be reminded myself, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead that is also at work in our mortal bodies has victory over our emotions. So today we're going to do a little study and we're going to talk about understanding my emotions. Here's blank number one for us. I don't know if you've ever known this or not, but God has emotions. God has emotions. The Bible talks about this all over the place. And it's more than just a personification of God. Now sometimes in the Bible there are certain metaphors used to describe God. And that's an important tool because all that is God is bigger than can ever be described in a sentence or two or even a paragraph or perhaps even all the literature in the world. So what we use is we use metaphors to give us certain facets of who God is. And then so sometimes you read, for instance, that God's love is like the love of a mother hen who puts her arms over her chicks, right? And so if you read that passage and you don't understand that's a metaphor, you get an image of God who has wings like a chicken, and that's not very good or theologically precise. But the metaphor communicates something very powerful, that God loves and protects his kids, right? But God has emotions, and the Bible talks about these from time to time. And the good news about that theologically is is the reason you and I even have emotions to begin with is because we are made in God's image. In fact, that takes us to point number two. My ability to feel is actually a gift from God. That's our blank, a gift from God. And he gave it to humankind before there was ever sin. So your emotions don't come from your fallen nature. They don't come from a sin-cursed world. At that time in creation when everything was still good, it was at that point that God made humankind, man and woman, in his image. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man or humankind in our image, in our likeness, male and female, he made them. And it's in that image of God, which is much more than a physical image. In fact, let me just give you a little little nice piece of theology that doesn't get unpacked here very often. In the ancient Near Eastern world, which is what biblical scholars call that time in the Old Testament in and around Israel, there were local nation states that rose up to power. And they were always warring with one one another. And Israel was one of those nation states. Babylon becomes a big one at some point in the history, and you have Assyria to the north and Egypt down to the south. These are all warring for resources and people in that time the Old Testament is written. Well, if you're in Babylon, though, and you have conquered areas far from the city of Babylon, 
what you would do is you would set up a potentate, or we might call him a king or a judge, if you will. And you would say, here's the phrase you would use, that that person sits in the image of the king who's sitting on the original throne back home. They're made, he's fashioned, he's governed, he's put together in the image of the king. And he represents all that the king wants to be represented in that land controlled by the king, even though the king can't physically be there. Now, this is pre-internet, pre-phone, pre-US mail, the whole bit. And so they would set up these people in the image of the authority. And that's what God has done for us. When the Bible says we're made in the image of God, we represent God's agenda. We represent God's authority here on this earth. It's a position of high favor that God has made humanity in to make them in his likeness. So it's not physical, but it represents something so much more. And part of being made in the image of God is, is that we have the capacity to feel. And it makes life beautiful and complex until it's not going so well. And then sometimes it makes it very difficult. And so maybe you would think then the positive emotions are emotions that represent God and the negative ones aren't. But then you read the Bible and you discover that God had what we might even categorize as negative emotions. It's there. It's in your Bible. And we'll talk about those in a second. But it's a gift from God. Now, in churches sometimes even, emotions can get a bad rap. In fact, I have found that there's two big extremes to avoid in life and in theology as it comes to the emotions of our lives. So let me give you a couple words that maybe you want to write in just before you get to point number three here, all right? Here's the first word as an extreme for us to avoid. It's the word emotionalism. Emotionalism. Emotionalism is all that matters, all that matters is how I feel. All that matters is how I feel. That's emotionalism. And what happens here is we elevate emotions to the point of such a high powerful position in our mind, in our thinking, in our lives, that it literally becomes the rudder on our ship. And if we feel something, we do it. In fact, if we feel it, we not only do it, we actually think it's okay, it's right, it's good, just because we feel it. I feel like doing this today, I'm going to do it. And emotionalism then becomes an extreme I'm saying we should avoid. Here's another extreme to avoid. Stoicism. Stoicism says, how I feel does not matter. How I feel does not matter. I have found in relationships, especially in marriage, that there's almost always one person who's a little bit more on the emotionalism side, and there's almost always somebody in the marriage who is a little bit more on the stoic side. And so you have stuffers and, and, and showers, right? Stuffers and gushers, people who stuff their emotions in a relationship, and they don't talk about it. They don't verbalize and things get a little chaotic. They kind of go quiet. And then you have folks who are always vocalizing how they feel. And uh, in a marriage, funny when they come and sit in your office, um, it doesn't take long to figure out which one is the one who's kind of gushing and which one is the one kind of stuffing. It's just the way it works. But you see the same thing happening in churches. In churches, in some churches you can go into, and it's apparent that emotions aren't really a part of the religious life or the spiritual expression of a person. And they, maybe they really just value the Word of God, which is very positive. But in valuing the Word of God, they say, hey, the emotions, they don't really matter. And in fact, we don't really allow much room for any expression of our emotion, right? Like the most emotion that you would get out of somebody at a church perhaps like that is a, hmm which is a really solid amen in some churches, all right? 
And then you probably have seen or maybe even been a part of some churches where it's like emotion kind of drives the whole thing. And so the worship team becomes kind of like cheerleaders. And uh, the goal is to have people have a deeply emotional experience every service. And if you don't have a deeply emotional connection, you really haven't been to church. And in those cases, um, an amen sounds much more like, you know, amen. And then, amen. And then, well, the pastors talk and they start talking back to them. That's not, here's the thing. Churches take on personalities. The Bible affirms our emotions but it also says that emotions shouldn't guide our lives. It's a part of our lives. And learning how to understand them, manage them, and ultimately let God be God over our emotions is a big part of life. And for those of you that are leaders, and I mention this because it's very much on my mind today. We had a, just had 100 folks in this room yesterday from around the community and our church who were a part of a leader cast event where people sharpen the saw of leadership in their life. And so we had teachers in the room, we had business folks in the room, we had people from all walks of life, and then back here in this back corner over here, there were about a dozen of our high school and junior high kids from our church sitting there taking notes about leadership, and that just makes a pastor feel incredible. But I found as a leader, if you're not careful, you can fall victim to either one of these extremes where you as a leader are led by your emotions and you're leading your organization and your team by your emotions. And I can tell you, if you've ever worked for a boss like that, that is not fun. If the boss had a good evening, the next day goes well for the team. And if they didn't, it doesn't go well for the team. That is not enjoyable. Parents can do that sometimes. We give people a pass in their kind of adolescent years, don't we, from about middle school to maybe 10th, 11th grade. We Understand emotions can be hard to wrangle as all the different hormones are rushing through our bodies. But God wants to be God of all the parts of our lives. All of them. That brings us to point number three then. I don't know if you understand this or not, but how much God values emotions. Because God actually gave us, here's the blank, the book of Psalms. In your Bible, an entire book, the longest book in your Bible, 150 chapters long. The book of Psalms to help contextualize and to help us understand our feelings. And so in the book of Psalms, all kinds of feelings are talked about. And God saw fit to put that in our holy book. In the thing that speaks with authority into our lives. You'll find in the book of Psalms negative emotions and positive emotions. Extreme emotions and subtle emotions. There's anger. There's complaining. There's praise. There's thanksgiving. There's fear. There's confidence. All kinds of emotions in the book of Psalms. That's why sometimes when life is a little turbulent, you know, and you can feel in your soul that it's the time to fasten your seatbelt, a lot of people turn to the book of Psalms. And I encourage that. Because in the book of Psalms, you see those writers talk honestly with God and to God and receive content back from God about engaging the emotional journey of their lives. And I like reading the Psalms in part because knowing some of those guys who helped write that book, like David and Solomon, you can actually pinpoint moments in their lives when they were feeling certain things by going to the book of Psalms. 
So for instance, when David was uh, running from King Saul and his life was in danger, he talks about hiding and being fearful, but having confidence in God. When David had sinned with Bathsheba and committed adultery and had her husband killed, he talks about the pain of feeling like his sin had separated him from God and his desire to reconnect with God. And when David is anointed king over Israel and the weight of that responsibility is on him, you hear David in the Psalms processing the emotions of uh, uh, that come with the responsibility that's in front of him and the opportunity that's in front of him. Pretty powerful place to go. And God gave us that book so that we could understand that our emotional self and our spiritual self overlap. In fact, you even see extreme emotion in and around Jesus' last few minutes on this earth. As he's praying in the garden and his sweat, the Bible says, becomes like drops of blood. And he's processing about what, uh, what, what's about to happen to him. And you hear in him a desire to avoid the ugliness. God, if, it, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. And then you hear him rein that emotion in with the statement, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You hear Jesus on the cross in his last few minutes talk about the care he wanted to offer his mother. And so he looks at a trusted disciple and he says, John... Now, from this point forward, that right there, that's your mom. You take care of her. Yeah, you can't get away from the gospel story without walking in and around emotions of the people through whom God gave us the gift of the gospel story. So you and I then have to learn to not avoid our emotions, but instead to manage them. To manage them. So let's talk about learning how to manage them and why we should. Here's number one then, because my feelings are often unreliable. As much as I've been talking about how much they're a gift from God, the truth is, is our feelings are often unreliable. We think that the right thing to do is what I feel down deep in my gut. And some of you, um, by personality profile, you're very much from the gut kind of leaders. So if you've taken the Myers-Briggs personality test, Um, That's where they give you four letters, introvert, extrovert, sensing, intuition, thinking, feeling, that kind of stuff. If you've done the Myers-Briggs and you have a high J or a high F in your profile, you may tend to lead from the gut. Some of you do that. And the problem with that is not that it's always wrong. It's that we'll tell ourselves if we feel strongly, there must be something to it. But your feelings can be incredibly unreliable. All of us in the room probably could raise our hands and say, there was a time in my life at a moment of decision when I went with my feelings. But if I were honest, just three, six, nine months later, I discovered my feelings weren't all the picture I needed in front of me. And I ran with my feelings, but my feelings weren't complete. They didn't color in the picture fully. Your feelings can come and go. In fact, they can literally change in a course of 30 minutes. You can be literally in one place and in a half an hour be somewhere completely different. It's like a roller coaster on occasion. The writer of Proverbs, Proverbs 14, verse 12, says these words. There's a way that seems right to 
humankind to mankind to men and women. But in the end, if we're not careful, it can lead to death. You can think you're right and still be wrong. You can believe it deeply. You can be very sincere and still dead. It can happen, all right? So you can't believe everything, and you can't accept everything that you feel. You can't. And you can't accept what somebody else next to you feels as true just because they feel it. It's not sufficient enough to feel. Now, feelings can be a part of the equation. They just can't be the guiding point in the in, in, in the equation of your decision-making. Here's another reason why we have to manage our emotions because I don't and you don't want to be manipulated. You don't, want, you don't want to be manipulated. And your emotions, if you're not careful, they can put you in a very vulnerable position. And I want to talk about two ways in which it makes you vulnerable. It can make you vulnerable to the agenda of other people and it can make you vulnerable to the agenda of your old nature the nature that you had before Christ became the leader of your life. Now, salesmen and advertisers are banking on the fact, literally, that they can stir your emotions and get you to buy their product. Remember, I was a business major in school, and I remember going through early marketing stuff. And it isn't the information that sells the product. It isn't. It is the emotional attachment we make to the product. It's not the car that makes the car attractive alone. It's the beautiful woman scantily clad standing next to it that helps sell that product. And it's not the shoes alone. It's that if you buy these shoes, when I, this is the late 80s reference, and you pump them up just a little bit, you might be able to jump like Michael Jordan. In other words, you're your performance in sports is likely to increase. And even if it doesn't, even if you can't play well, you're going to look good. Right? It's the product. If you're involved in multi-level marketing, it's not just the product you're selling, but it's the promise that if people will buy from you and, in fact, help you sell the product, they'll not only get the benefit of the product, they'll get a better quality of life as you, and then you can fill in the blank, have more time to spend with your kids. Have more money to spend on vacations. It's, they're not just selling a product. They're selling a lifestyle. That's the way it works. So if you're not careful and you don't manage your emotions, you'll be victim to impulse buying and you'll be in over your head very, care, very, very quickly. But the other one is more important for our discussion today. If you're not careful, you'll be manipulated by your old nature. Every one of us, even those of us who've committed our lives to Jesus, are in a cosmic battle for the quality of our lives. We are. And if we're not careful, the old nature, the unregenerated nature that isn't in position to honor God and follow God, let God be God, that thing will rise up in us and it will tell us to follow our motivations, to follow our hunches, to follow our feelings every single moment of our life. You don't want to get up and do the right thing today? Don't. You deserve a break anyway. Which, by the way, is a slogan an advertiser used. You deserve a break, so come buy our product. That's proof, right, of how much you need a break. You have a chance to go out and buy this thing. And people who are completely upside down on their finances, the moment they get overwhelmed, they'll go ahead and spend another 100, 150, or 1,000 bucks because they deserve it. And they're just led by their emotions. 
And the same thing can happen to you spiritually if you're not careful. You'll be faithful to your spouse every day for 10 to 12 years, but then just the normal drudgery of life sometime will kick in and perhaps you're not in a bad place a good place anyway, and there are stresses at work, but then there's this one person at work who seems to really want to listen to what you have to say and seems to really enjoy engaging you. And you find yourself, if you're not careful, enjoying those conversations more than the ones at home. And you start telling yourself, this is no big deal because it feels nice to be listened to on that level. When you go home, it doesn't seem to have the same level of respect or engagement. And people start thinking and enjoying those feelings and sometimes trade a decade or two or even three decades of faithfulness because their emotions begin to pull them away. You've seen this happen, right? It's incredible what happens when our emotions aren't in check, when they're not under the lordship of Christ. Again, the writer of Proverbs chapter 25. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. When the Bible talks about self-control, most of the time it's talking about you and I keeping a rein on our emotion. Giving emotions a place to run, but then putting a fence around where we let it run. That's what self-control in the Bible is all about. And it's incredibly difficult to do. Fear can grip you, keep you from walking in boldness. Fear will keep you from having the conversations you need to have. Convince yourself all day long it's okay for you not to have that conversation. When in fact it's just fear that's got a hold of you. And so Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 says that you and I should be self-controlled and alert. Here's why. Because we have an enemy. And your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, those two statements are put together. Self-controlled and alert keeps us from being susceptible to the enemy who wants to devour us. In one place, the picture in the Bible is, is that the enemy of our soul is crouching at the door. And we're just walking through life, and we're about to go through some transition And we don't realize he's right there and he's ready to pounce. So being self-controlled is one of the fruit of God's spirit in our life. When God is at work, we begin to put boundaries, appropriate boundaries around our emotions. Let me give you another reason why we want to manage our emotions and deal with how we feel. Because we want, or I want, to please God. Now you can't Live the life God wants you to live of purpose and meaning and direction until you begin to deal with how you feel. God can't control my life when my emotions control my life. And I'm back to the point I was making earlier. When God is the Lord of your life and he's calling you to holiness and he's calling you to right living and he's calling you to treating human beings with respect, but then the emotion gets in there, It will almost convince you that you're justified for your careless words and anger-filled rants. And so God's word says, look, if you want to please God, you want to walk in the shadow of God's favor, you're going to have to rein that stuff in. So Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Look at these words. The mind governed by the flesh is death. 
But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. There's something about the duality of the life we're in. One foot on earth and one foot in heaven. One foot in spirit world, one foot in flesh world. And we are called as followers of Jesus to constantly turn towards God's agenda. And then there's our own emotions. Remember last week when we were speaking that we're not led away only because the enemy of our soul tempts us. But James taught us in the New Testament that it's temptation coming from our own hearts. That when that thing has taken root, it gives birth to sin. And so we have to renew our thinking and our feeling both. Let me give you one more reason why we have to manage our emotions. Because I want to fulfill my life's purpose. God has put you on this earth for a reason. You were not an accident. Your birth is not an accident, even if you were unplanned by your parents. God made sure you were in this earth. And not just so that you could enjoy it, but so that you could fulfill a purpose. I am finding more and more that my joy, my enjoyment of my life is directly connected to my purpose. I'm a husband. And I want to fulfill that role with honor and dignity. I want to lead my family and be an encouragement. I want to esteem and promote my wife. Part of my purpose. It's why I'm here. And when I have a robust understanding of why I'm here, it makes my engagement take on shape and it colors in the lines. And I'm a dad. I don't want to just provide for my kids, which I think if that's all I were to do, certainly puts me above a lot of folks. Right? You've seen folks who don't want to take responsibility. But that's not enough for me. I got a purpose. You have a purpose. I, I want to make a deep investment in my kids, you know? I don't want to just give them stuff. Like, I want to grow their hearts. That's my purpose. So sometimes when parenting is hard, because it is, man, it's, it can be hard. I remember why I'm here and my why begins to speak into the difficulty and it doesn't make the challenge go away, but it does begin to shine a light in the middle of that dark season. It begins to chart a course forward, right? It's purpose. I'm a pastor. I, I love this church. But I'll be honest with you. I don't love it all every day. And I love you, but sometimes I don't. And as I told you a couple weeks ago, pastors have a saying sometimes, it's just sheep bite. And that's back to the metaphor of the pastor who's a shepherd. And so it's awesome. And there are days, man, I think, well, what am I doing? This is, this is just hard. And then there's my purpose. There's my why. And I remember my job isn't to get us to some kind of problem-free existence. My purpose as a pastor, as a shepherd, is to guide and lead. And actually, problems are part of my purpose. It's part of how God does his work. And does it make it easy? Not, no. But it does begin to shine a light. So you have a purpose. You have a purpose. 
And it goes beyond your vocation. It speaks directly to your relationships. It's the kind of thing that when we're around what we would all agree are great people, like that's a great man, that's a great woman. It's the kind of thing that we all know made them great. They discovered why they were here and they did it with a certain amount of faithfulness and probably a little bit of excellence. And now the impact of their life has been so positive on others. It's your why. And if you won't manage your emotions, if you won't deal with your impulses, you won't achieve your why. You won't. And so we have to let God be God of our emotions. Look at what 1 Peter chapter 5 again says. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. I'm discovering new and new. It's not likely to be the circumstances that derail my life or anybody else's. It'll be me. It will. It won't be the Lord. It won't be you. It'll be me. So I've got to deal with how I feel so that I continue to step into my purpose. And you have to deal with how you feel so you step into your purpose. And I think that the sweet spot of following God is at the confluence of your purpose and your intentionality. I don't think it's when problems go away and when all your blessings come and all your problems flee. But when you begin to walk at that juncture between the purpose you know that you're on earth for, even if you don't know the whole picture, you know a piece of it, and you begin to bring your best self there. Instead of just riding the wave, you start setting some agendas. I want to be marked by, for instance, excellence in my work. I want to be marked by careful engagement with my kids to not just provide, but have some important conversations. How many people do we know who've ruined reputations by one careless set of actions? Lost a job? Because in a moment, they were foolish. Another reason that you have to understand your emotions to fulfill your life purpose is what the psychologists and the people who study this stuff are describing the difference between your intelligent quotient, your IQ, and your EQ. And what folks are discovering is the folks who are rising to the top, the cream in your work environment that's rising to the top are not necessarily the smartest people in your room, but they get people. They get people. They have emotional intelligence. And they understand how to engage people in a way that brings out the best in others. And when they do that, everybody around them seems to acknowledge there's something special here. And those folks tend to rise up in organizations. That's what the data shows us. But this is not just marketplace reality. This is biblical reality. Leaders in churches are not careless. They're careful. Pay attention. They listen to the Spirit. They listen to people. And over time, God elevates that stuff. So now let's talk for just a few minutes about then how to manage an unwanted feeling. We've talked about the fact that it's from God. We've talked about why we need to manage them. Now let's talk about a little bit of how. Let me give you just three big ideas. I think the first one is you have to name your feelings. Name your feelings. Here's what I think. If you can't name it, you can't change it. 
Now, for those of you that are stuffers and don't like to talk about this stuff, this will be hard. For those of you that are gushers, would you just please be quiet for a second and let me talk to you, all right? Okay. If you can't, name your feelings. Now, when, when, when I was going to a counselor, I, I do that. In fact, the best advice I ever got when we were starting this church was from a guy who served as a mentor for my life for a while. And he said, hey, before you get rolling, before you have any problems, go ahead and find a counselor and sit down and start talking. Because when you need one, you're going to be in over your head. So go ahead and get one. So I did. And he started talking about the challenge of naming your emotions. He said, you'll name circumstances, you'll name people, but when you can start naming what's happening inside of you, now we can begin to deal with it. Because we can't change them, we often can't change your circumstance, but we can talk about you in the middle of all that. So you got to name your feelings. So I remember one time a buddy of mine, he was going through some counseling, he was a pastor, and most of my friends are pastors, so that's all the stories I have, I'm sorry, but he said... He said he goes to this, 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 this guy, they're having some marriage stuff and some church stuff. It's amazing how often those things go together. And so um, they were having some challenges. And the guy says to this pastor, this counselor says to the pastor, he says, hey, how in touch do you think you are with your feelings? And the pastor's like, I'm very in touch with my feelings. And the pastor's like, well, tell me some feelings you've been having this week. And there was his wife sitting next to him. And, you know, he's like, ah, I, I don't know. I'm like, no, no, you, you said you're in touch. How in what are some feelings you're having? So finally, after a few just kind of awkward moments and some false starts, he says, well, I, I was kind of feeling hungry. Yeah, feeling hungry. Yeah. I was kind of feeling hungry. I was kind of feeling some pressure. And I feel like I just, you know, want a break. So that's not what I'm talking about. Wanting a break feeling pressure, feeling hungry. Those are drives. Those are motivations. Those are challenges. They're not emotions. All right, so you feel hungry. Now what? Now what? what? What is the emotion behind that? What's going on behind the stuff? Now, I'm not trying to be all pop psychology on, on you for a minute, but what I'm finding is, is that when we can name our emotions, I'm angry. Okay. Why? Why are you angry? Now, if, it's, if we can't name it, we can't talk about it. So what am I really feeling? And then here's another question. What set me off on this course? Well, I'm angry because my food's not here yet. And we got here a half an hour ago, and they're chaotic in this place. And we ordered, and it's still not here. In the South, we call that hangry. You know this word? Hangry. You're hangry. Some of you are susceptible to hangry, right? You know what that's like. Now, what happens when you begin to figure out what God does here, now we can begin to talk about that. In fact, we're going to do that in a second, about how to kind of like control this stuff. But we have to be able to admit where we are. I have chatted with folks in marriage counseling situations where they can't even admit that they're angry at their spouse. Maybe it's because they believe as a Christian you can't say it. They can't say, I'm feeling incredibly disappointed. Now, I'm ashamed. Now, the ability you have to tell yourself the truth about your emotions and give it a name, when you do that, now we have something we can work with. Now you have something you can pray about. Now you have something you can talk with a friend about. I'm angry at my spouse because of these things. And when these things happen, I feel 
unwanted, unloved, uncared for. All right, now we can start talking. As opposed to, he doesn't love me. She doesn't have time for me. Maybe, maybe those things are true, but how does it make you feel? This is an invitation to embrace all the emotions long enough to look at them. In Psalm 55, it's not in your message notes, David says, my thoughts are restless and I'm confused. I like that the Bible just tells you the truth. I don't even know how I feel. I just don't like what happened. That's fine. But tomorrow when you get up, we're probably going to have to talk about how you feel about this. Number two, challenge your feelings. Challenge your feelings. Here's two, two really good questions. Are things really as bad as I feel? Now, parents, this is your tool when your kids are in middle school or now college, same period of life. It's not a joke about millennials. It's just what the psychologists are telling us these days, that adolescence is delayed and the onset of full adulthood is coming later and later. And you'll hear statements like this, my life is over. And then there'll be some reason why life is over. Well, you have to help them understand that things aren't as bad as they feel. They're not. I go through an occasional season about the end of every year where I start reflecting on the year. And the first cycle, every year is the same for me. I start thinking about all the things that I said I would want to get done this year that I didn't get them done. That's usually where I go. Somewhere between about Thanksgiving and New Year. It makes for great holidays with the family, by the way. <laughs> but at the end of the year, it's when I evaluate. And the first cycle is always, this is not good. I do not like this, whatever it is. But the truth is, it's never as bad as you think it is. Now, I'm not saying you don't have bad stuff going on. It isn't wrecking your emotions. Sometimes it's real. But even in the darkest days, if you pause and think and ask yourself, is it really this bad? And you get down to what you're feeling and what made you feel that way, you'll discover it's not as bad as you feel. But I want to give you the other side because this side often has to be done in churches. Ask yourself, are things as good as I feel? Everything's great. God's blessing. That's good. That's good. But sometimes I found in some Christian environments, it's really easy to convince yourself everything is good because you can't even talk about the bad. That you don't, you, you'll go 10 years without working on anything. So are things as good as I feel? Because here's the truth. Your feelings will lie to you. They will. That's why the Bible says that even when your heart deceives you, God is greater than your heart. And if you let your feelings drive, don't be surprised if you wind up in the ditch. It'll happen. And this is a great chance to get somebody who is careful with their words to sit down and talk with you. What are the reasons I feel this way? What are you trying to do? And are your reasons right now, are your feelings right now, are they helping you or are they hurting you? Do they have you stuck or are they motivating you to action? To, for instance, to prayer? Are they motivating you to take the steps of responsibility you can take? When Job was going through his rough stuff, he had a friend, and their advice most of the time was poor, but on occasion they'd hit a nugget. And one of Job's friends was the name, uh, a friend by the name of Eliphaz. In Job 15, here's what Eliphaz asked Job. It's a great question. Why has your heart carried you away, and why do your eyes flash? He's just saying, look, I can see you're troubled. What's What's going on? Do you have a friend who can ask you those questions? 
When you do, it gives you a chance to challenge your feelings and put them back in boundary. This is why the Bible puts such a, one of the reasons why the Bible puts such a big value on fellowshipping with believers. Why in small groups, we want to give you a chance to have the possibility of building godly friendships. Psalm 26. Here's what David said. Test me, Lord, and try me and examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. So he's going through a rough time, and he said, I remember when I rely on your love and your faithfulness, it helps me. So in this season, Lord, test me, try me. So name it, challenge it. Number three, tame your feelings. I'm going to give you two big words in a second. Here's two questions here. Ask this, God... Would you please fill me with your spirit? Here's a question you can ask. God, would you fill me with your spirit? The fruit of the spirit, one of them is self-control. So when I'm going through a rough season, God, I need more of your spirit. One of my favorite pastors of the last 100 years was a gentleman by the name of D.L. Moody. He started a movement we call Sunday School. Big, big work in inner city Chicago. You can still go to the church built in his honor, the Moody Memorial Church. He was a major player. He was a general in God's army. D.L. Moody said this. The reason why regularly he has to ask God to fill him with his spirit is because D.L. Moody said this. He said, I leak. I leak. So he's regularly saying, God, fill me with your spirit. I want to ask you something. Let me give you a little model here in a second. It's always appropriate to say, God, I need more of you. So here's something I do. You can do it to what you want. I literally put myself in a posture physically to receive. So I stand there with my hands like this on occasion, and I say, God, I don't have what I need. And I know you are ultimately the source of all good things. And anything you give me will be good. Good for me, good for the people I care about, good for my life. So, Father, would you fill me with every good gift you have for me? And I don't mean stuff. God, would you fill me with your spirit? Overflowing. And when followers of Jesus put themselves in a posture to be filled with God's spirit, what you're saying is, is, God, there's some emptiness in my cup, or there's some stuff in my cup that doesn't belong there. Would you just pour your spirit in, and would you then bring everything else to the surface so it runs over, and the only thing left is your spirit? Here's another question you can ask when you want to tame your feelings. What would please God in this moment? Here's what I've discovered is that self-control comes from God control. When God is the value, it's amazing how much more I can keep myself in line. That's why Galatians 5 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control And the Bible then says, against these things, there is no law. In other words, we can't make rules about this. Not the way it works, but these are principles that when God's spirit is at work, you begin to see fruit in the life of the person. Proverbs 13, 3. Those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin. God, I want to run my mouth. Would you fill me with your spirit right now? Would you give me self-control Now, around here, we end our services every week with the same words. And you may not know this, but those words are based on the book of Psalms 19, verse 14. Here's what it says. In the NIV version, we tweaked it slightly. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
Not just what I say, but understanding that out of the overflow of my heart, my mouth will speak. So God, there's some stuff in there. Would you fill me so with your spirit that it pushes all of that out? So that when I engage this thing in front of me, when I deal with me, when I deal with it, when I engage my marriage, when I engage my kids, engage my work, when I think about my future, as I think about my money, as I think about all the things in front of me, God, when I deal with this problem, when I get this bad news, would you so fill me with your spirit that I lead out of the overflow of what's going on in my heart? And I want to tell you, that's not easy. But when you begin to understand that you have authority as a follower of Jesus over your emotions, you do. They do not guide your life. And you understand that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is greater than how you're feeling right now. God's spirit can literally consume those thoughts and feelings and energize the right ones and quiet down the wrong ones. And help you guard your mouth and guard your actions so that you begin to walk more clearly towards your purpose. I'm praying, I'm praying that God would help me manage my emotions because I want to walk this life with him so that people see not me and my thoughts, but they see him at work in me. That's what I want for my wife, for my children. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for the ladies at Waffle House that take care of me when I go over there and have meetings with some of you and it's what I want for the people at the store I engage. And even, even if the Lord will help me as I'm driving on the road, going a little faster than I should. I want it in all those environments. And I'm finding that when God is at work and I'm open to it, even things like my emotions are easier to manage. Well, why don't we take out our connect cards and take a couple steps together <clears throat> towards managing our emotions, all right? So I've been talking about the power at work in us, but it could be that you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. So if that's true, I want to ask you if today you need to make Jesus your Savior and Lord. If you've never come to that place where you've said to God what the Bible says about you, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I can't save myself. I want to give you a chance to take your pen and check next step A. God, I have nothing to bring you. I can't save myself. No amount of good works will do it. So I'm going to trust the work that Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection. I'm going to put my faith in that, in his work, and I'm going to trust that that will bring me into a relationship with my heavenly father. So if you'd like to do that, check the box and put the card in the offering bucket. In a few minutes, we're going to pray. And also, in a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. Even if this is your very first time to acknowledge that you want a relationship with Jesus, when we get up as a church family to take communion, I want to invite you to come too. Because at the table of God, it's not about when you began to be a part of his family. It's just whether you're in or not. I want to give you a chance to pray in a minute, but also get up and come forward and take the piece of bread and put it in the larger cup, which is wine, or the smaller cup, which is grape juice. And remember what was said over that last meal that Jesus had with his followers when he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And you can be made whole because he was broken. And then with the cup, this is my poured out blood shed for the covering of your sin. So you come imperfectly, but knowing that his perfect work makes it okay. He covers it. 
maybe today you need to take next step B that says, today I'm choosing to be baptized. Last week we baptized a couple of young ladies with beautiful stories, just beautiful stories of God's work in their life. We celebrated with them. And so if you need to be baptized or ask those questions about it, go ahead and check the box. We'll talk with you. Now next step C says this. I don't want to build my life on my feelings. So pray with me as I learn to let God be the Lord of my emotions. So if, like, if you're going through something, this is your box. And we will pray with you. And if you want to tell us a little bit about that on your Connect card, you can. And on Tuesday, when we come into the office and before we have our staff meeting, we'll cover this thing in prayer. Now, next step C is a chance for you to memorize God's word. I find that when you fill your life and mind with God's word, it just helps everything. So here's what it says. Hide God's word in my heart by memorizing Psalm 1914. May these words in my mouth and these meditations on my heart be pleasing to you. Uh, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Or you can say it the way we say it at the end of every service. And then this week when it comes up, God, my thoughts, my heart, the meditations, and my words, let them please you, Lord. The next step, E, is about our church life. We have a core rally meeting four times a year. And so the next scheduled one is May 21. And if you call this church home, I'd love for you to check the box so we can send you the information. It's at 4 p.m. on Sundays. We'll feed you, and we'll send you that information if you check the box. If you're our guest today and you want to know what's going on behind the curtains, check the box. Come. It's not, not secret. It's just stuff we don't deal with here on Sunday morning, all right? Let's pray about these things and then take communion together as a church family. Father, thank you that you're the God of our feelings. Lord, thank you that you made us in your image, and that includes our emotions. But God, we don't want to be led by our emotions. We want to be led by you. We want to be spirit-led people. And so God, some of us in the room need to deal with some emotions. We need to say no to how we're feeling. No to fear. No to discouragement. No to hatred and bitterness. And God, for some of us, uh, the truth is, is we need to walk in greater boldness and courage. God, I pray that this church would be marked by love, that the emotion that people experience in this place is love. And so, God, I pray that you would make us people who guard our words, guard our actions, so that the love you have can shine through us. I join with those that are declaring today, Lord, wash away my sins. I have nothing to bring. And so, God, I bring myself to you, and I trust the work that Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection that that alone is sufficient to save me from myself, wash away my sins, and lead my life. Father, as we join as a church family now and take communion, I pray that whatever spiritual nourishment we need, we would receive it in this act of faith. And God, would you make us bold enough to pray the prayer? Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.